Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest. You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is laborunionnews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Well, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. If you're in human resources or labor relations and are following the news, you probably saw the stories over the weekend about how the National Labor Relations Board is accusing Starbucks of committing unfair labor practices. In fact, according to the headlines, as well as the NLRB's complaint against Starbucks, the company allegedly, and I want to underscore allegedly, committed dozens of unfair labor practices, and the NLRB cites around 200 examples. Well, as I read the 45-page case over the weekend, I thought that it would be useful for HR practitioners, especially those unfamiliar with labor relations, to sort of walk through some of the legal concepts and how tricky it can be to navigate through union organizing campaigns. And in order to do that, I asked labor and employment attorney John Hyman back on Labor Relations Radio because as a shareholder and director of the law firm Wickens, Herzer, and Panza, John could weigh in on some of these issues from a legal perspective. And again, because I think this is being lost in the media, I want to underscore the fact that the NLRB's accusations against Starbucks are purely that accusations. Starbucks is still entitled to its day in court, so to speak. And in fact, this case may go on for quite a while. So what we're talking about is not even whether the allegations are true, but the principles behind the allegations. And as always, I'll have the links to the NLRB's complaint, as well as a bunch of other links under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Here's John Hyman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, John Hyman, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. Thanks for coming on on uh, such short notice. Peter List, thank you so much for inviting me back on. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun last time. Why not? You know, why not do it again? We, we could be regulars. Um, there you go. So, what I was thinking is because the big news over the weekend was the NLRB complaint filed against Starbucks, and then there was another one which doesn't seem to be anywhere online that was uh, either forthcoming or is reported on by Bloomberg uh, with Amazon in their captive audience meetings. I don't have, I can't get much information on that because it just doesn't appear to be anywhere other than Josh Edelston or Edelson at uh, Bloomberg got an email from the board. But um, so you've, you've gone through some of the uh, Starbucks allegations. These appear to be, and I'm going to put the link to the actual complaints uh, under the audio portion so people can, read through what we're talking about, but it appears to be um, rather lengthy, about 45 pages of allegations and fairly well documented, um, whether they're true or not. I guess, let me ask you a question. So when the labor board is more clarifying, when the National Labor Relations Board comes out with a complaint like this, this is basically like a grand jury saying, we think there's enough evidence to go to trial on it, right? 
Yeah, that's correct. It is. I don't want to use a criminal analogy, but I will because there's a different, obviously, different standard of proof here. But yeah, it's like it's like there's enough cause to believe that a violation of the act has occurred. So it's like a grand jury or a or a probable cause hearing to say that yes, we believe there's enough evidence here to put this before an ALJ to decide whether uh, whether uh, based on the facts we believe them, the act has been violated. So there's, um, I, I stupidly went through and just kind of counted the agents of the employer that were cited out there, and, and they go from shift supervisors all the way up to the CEO. Um, but there's 103 agents of the of the company that they listed out in the in the complaint, and they're hitting everything. It's it seems like the kitchen soup and then some. Yeah, it is. Uh, man, I wish I was a lawyer representing uh, Starbucks. I'd be, able to, <laughs> God, I'd be able to retire and do for my kids' college and all, all be above with one case, but uh, I'm not. So uh, you and I are talking. Yeah, well, it was, it was important that I, I reached out to an attorney who's not associated with any of these cases. So um, the the allegations. So first of all, for the HR listeners, um do you want to run through the tips or what you're allowed to do, not allowed to do with, with normal union organizing campaigns? Cause this gets a little nuanced as well. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's nuanced and it's important. I'm glad you asked. And it's important to talk about this because these are issues that 90, I mean, ballpark at 90%, 95%, 98% of HR professionals have never had to deal with in their careers um, just because they just haven't, we just haven't seen the level of union organizing we're seeing now. But there are, there there is a defined set of rules that the NLRB uh, uh, over the years uh, has laid in place for what employers um, can and more, I think more importantly, can't um, say and do during a union organizing campaign. The most common um, acronym is TIPS, T-I-P-S, threats, interrogation, promises, um, surveillance. Uh, and those are the four kind of big no-nos that uh, an employer cannot do during a union, organi- during a union organizing campaign. So t- uh, threats, uh, the T and tips, threats, an employer can't threaten employees about what will happen if the union wins the election. So you can't threaten to close a plant, you can't threaten layoffs, you can't threaten to shrink payer benefits, uh, and you can't threaten to discipline or terminate employees who uh, support the union, vote for the union uh, uh, during the during the organizing campaign. The the way I define threats when I'm doing training for supervisors, managers is any kind of predictive statement with a negative consequence at the end. Correct. So anything with a will, as opposed to this could happen. It's if this happens, this will happen, and that's a negative whatever that is, it's predictive, then then you're probably in the threatening territory. Yeah, I mean, and you can certainly, there, there's nothing in the act that prevents an employer from stating facts or offering its opinions. Um, that means that you could say that, look, we have a defined, you know, we, we don't know how this is going to shake out, but we just, we have a defined pot of money and we may not be able to afford to give pay increases or to give pay increases we may that money have to come from somewhere else. And so you can certainly make st- factual, factually based statements. You can give your opinion about uh, unionization, unions in general, 
um, your how the union, your opinions about collective bargaining, your opinions about you know grievance and arbitration procedures um, and the like. But yeah, but anything I think you the way you phrase it is is a great way to think about it. If it's if it's a will, it's a prediction, and a prediction is a threat, and a threat will buy you an unfair labor practice charge, uh, which is not a good thing to buy yourself in the middle of an organizing campaign. Yeah, I, I wanted to parse that out because um, there are several of the Starbucks allegations or the NLRB allegations with regard to Starbucks that is depending on how something is said um, could be a threat or it could just be a statement of fact. And one of, and I'm just pulling this up on the screen, one of them is that the employer stated that managers, one of the agents of the employer stated that one of the managers, that the managers would be unable to assist employees on the floor of their stores. And that constituted a threat. Well, if, if somebody were to say it that way, that probably would be a threat, right? But if they actually said that in typical collective bargaining agreements, there's a, a bargaining unit that's defined and managers are oftentimes not allowed to do bargaining unit work, that could be factual. Uh, that's, yes. that, is, that is correct. And it is, which is why it, it is very, I believe, uh, training here is vital. Um, I believe that things should be when you're what managers and supervisors, uh, CEOs, executives, C-suite level people are talking about um, these uh, these issues with employees during during an organizing campaign. Um, you should not be leaving these things to chance. This stuff should be scripted out uh, by a labor lawyer who understands the nuances here, um, so that you are not uh, you're leaving as little to chance as possible because. Uh, the turn of a word or the turn of a phrase could very well be the difference between an illegal threat or a uh, a lawful statement of facts, and that could be the difference between a election um, standing, the election result standing, if an employer wins an election, or uh, an election uh, uh, a redo being ordered, or even uh, in the most egregious cases, that would be employer facing facing a, a potential bargaining. So. Um, very important that employers understand these nuances and involve professionals who who uh, have spent their careers understanding these nuances and can help employers um, craft their message uh, in in a lawful manner and not in an unlawful and not in an unlawful manner that's going to get them in trouble with the board. Yeah, so I want to come back to the the tips in a second, but I want to also kind of reiterate um, the reason that we're covering this is because these are even though there's no finding of guilt, this is, you know, the board accusing Starbucks of doing this. Um, but it looks as though almost all of the allegations in here cover under the umbrella of tips from interrogation to spying, creating the impression of surveillance, um, promises, remedying, uh, grievances, et cetera. Yeah. We're not, we're certainly not saying that Starbucks did any of these things. Um, or that they are factually accurate, or we don't know. I, we don't know how uh, ALJ, the Administrative Law Judge, or the board will ultimately decide the issues. Um, this is an allegation of facts that the board took from complaining employees, and based on those facts, the board found that there was cause to to issue a complaint, and that's where we are, at least from a procedural standpoint. We are at the beginning of the case, um, and the allegations will be proven or, or disproven. Um, in a hearing before an administrative law judge who will ultimately, who will ultimately have the first say 
at a first level decision as to whether the act has been violated. Right. So um, a number of the allegations. So do you want to move on to the I part? Uh, sure. So the I in TIP stands for interrogate. Uh, an employer cannot interrogate employees about their support of the union. Uh, you can't, uh, for example, poll employees about how they intend to vote. Are they going to vote yes or no? You can't ask who signed authorization cards, uh, who didn't sign authorization cards, uh, whether employees support or don't support the union. Um, uh, that is a personal choice of theirs, and it cannot be uh, discovered through interrogation by an employer. Right. So a number of these um, allegations involve a form of interrogation called solicitation of grievances. Yeah, which is which in and of itself is is also illegal under the act. So you can't you can't uh, ask employees for issues that they're having in order to uh, redress them, fix them, cure them for uh, for employees. Yeah, I'm I'm reading through here, and all of these are are um, phrased the same way, where it they use the term by you know such and such date, so and so by its agents soliciting employee complaints and grievances so the the asking of what's your issue why are you guys looking at a union things like that would be a solicitation of grievances and then the other half of that is the implied promise that you're going to fix those issues yeah and that's the and we'll get to the promise in a second piece but yeah but that's um that's uh uh i think the more the, the more problematic piece here which is the it's not just the that you're trying to figure out what employees' issues are, but then the the implied promise that if you tell us what's wrong, we'll fix it for you. Therefore, making the union uh, uh, making the union unnecessary. Right. So for for HR folks or supervisors, managers, if you go out on the floor and there's you know suspected union activity, and you go out and ask, you know, hey, what are the issues? You know that that could be deemed solicitation of grievances. Correct. And, but, but the key, I mean, the, the key is the solicitation. There's nothing wrong with, um, at any point in time, uh, pre-organizing, during organizing from having an open door, uh, to your, to your office, HR manager, supervisor, whomever that employees can bring issues to. There's nothing that prevents an employer from uh, fixing a problem that's brought to your attention. You just can't go out and actively, uh, seek out those during organizing, can actively go out and seek those problems with the implied promise that you'll fix them for the employees. Right. Um, and there's a couple allegations of um, interrogating employees about pins and, and things like that. That, of course, would be interrogation. Correct. The Do you want to talk about the, the promises aspect? Yeah. Um, uh, T-I-P-S-P for promises. Uh, an employer can't promise employees, uh, uh, can't make promises during organizing, uh, promises such as uh, it'll make things better for them if they vote against the union. They can't promise pay raises. They can't promise better benefits. They can't promise promotions or really anything else of uh, any sort of value whatsoever. Uh, in exchange, either implicitly or tacitly, uh, for a no vote by the employees. So, um, a few of these are the actual. They solicited their the boards accusing Starbucks of soliciting grievances and then actually fixing issues. And 
where it's not necessarily a promise, although there's those allegations as well. Um, some of them are interesting and I would think would go to the heart of managerial discretion uh, where they allegedly got rid of, let's see, by removing and replacing both district managers overseeing respondents' Buffalo facilities. And so what the what the union or the labor board NLRB is accusing Starbucks of doing is uh, respondent remedy grievances by removing and and replacing the district managers there. Yeah. So uh, you employees, I think the, the, the allegation is, or if you kind of read the implication of the allegation, it's uh, you are having issues with this one particular manager or supervisor or group of managers or supervisors. And so we got rid of them and replaced them with someone else who might, who you might, have a, a a more friendlier ear with, and then they might be able to do something for you where you kind of had a brick wall with the management that was in place before. So it seems a little more, a little more of a tenuous allegation to me. Um, but I can certainly see, um, I can certainly see the argument that's 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 being made here by including those allegations in the in, in the complaint. Yeah, a number of these seem tenuous. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, um... I, I I agree. I mean, it's different than. Um, the story broke a week or a week or so ago of Starbucks giving um, uh, pay raises to non-union stores, right? And so that to me seems like a much more um, a much more uh, uh, direct promise of higher wages than you know we're going to replace a supervisor who might give you a, who, someone who might give you a friendlier ear who might be able to do something for you. So to me, if you're telling uh, if Starbucks corporate is telling all of their employees nationwide that we're going to give pay raises uh, to uh, all of the, all of our non-union shops, um, they'll say, you know, we're doing that because we can't give pay raises to our union shops because they're collectively bargained. We have to go through the, we have to negotiate that with the union, which is true. But I think it's also um, uh, either a, you can view it as a, as a threat or, or a promise uh, to the those shops that are currently in the midst of an organizing drive, that um, you know, if you vote no, you'll end up immediately with a higher wage as a result, and that to me is that tremendously problematic for Starbucks. Well, it's yeah, but you you touched on the fact that for already unionized locations, that in fact would be true because any wage increases or better benefits or whatever would have to be negotiated, right? Yeah, correct. But then, but then at least hanging out there, the 200 or so that have not voted yet are still in the midst of, are still in the midst of organizing. And so it's, it's, um, it's to me, it it certainly looks problematic because it looks like you're trying to lean on those 200 to get, to get a no vote by saying, we're going to give a pay raise to the, you know, however many thousands of employees are not in the middle of organizing. So it's, it's that to me is, is, much closer to either an illegal threat or an illegal promise than the uh, we're gonna we're gonna replace your manager with someone different who you might you might be able to convince to address your grievance differently. Yeah, so that that goes down an interesting rabbit hole because um, they've got roughly nine thousand stores across the U.S. and they need to you know for eight thousand eight hundred of them they need to fix or find out whatever their issues are. So do they stop their business for the rest of the company or do they, you know, just to cater to the 200 or so that are under petition or the five or 20 of them or however many have already unionized? 
you know, that's, that's a weird kind of dynamic for a business. It is. It really is. And I, I think you raise a really good point, which is while we're obviously we're talking about Starbucks, it's the, I think it is the um, uh, HR story of the year for sure, kind of what's going on from an organizing standpoint. We're still talking about a relatively a relatively small percentage of their stores that have organized. And at the end of the day, maybe yeah, uh, we'll see, I, I think we'll still see the number increase, but what that final number is of stores that have organizing campaigns launched in them and um, the number that are ultimately successful, it's still going to be, uh, I would assume, at the end of the day, a small percentage of Starbucks you know, kind of corporate nationwide. And so I think you're right. You are uh, clearly... There are problems in the company um, uh, that need to be addressed. If there weren't, this wouldn't be happening. Uh, but yeah, but the, then the question is: Do you right? Do you do something in nine thousand stores to address issues that have come up in a couple hundred? It is a it is a very 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 interesting um, decision for Starbucks to make as to how to handle the nine thousand or so stores that have that have not that they don't believe are actively organizing you. Yes. Yeah, so, um, if you walk through these, these allegations and then the remedies that are, are towards the end, I'm kind of fanning back in the pages here. Um, some of the remedies are now you've got allegations of unlawful terminations and stuff like that. So there's make whole remedies and consequential damages. Um, but it's the posting of, either notices or emails to uh, all associates throughout the United States. So that's all nine, you know, whatever, half a million employees yeah. or however many are at the 9,000 stores. Because, um, of course, these organizing efforts need a, kick, need a kick in the ass to help them out. So. Right. And then you've got the um, Howard Schultz is supposed to, or, or whoever the other individual is, supposed to read with the union presence um, or presence read a, a notice to all employees videotape message. And the other one, which was kind of interesting is to have the federal mediation and conciliation service do training for all the um, supervisors. Yeah, that, that is, that is interesting. Um, although we see that a lot in like in, in EEOC settlements, uh, like I'm doing, for example, I'm doing fair I, I'm, as their lawyer, I'm doing fair housing training tomorrow for, a, uh, a a client that had a fair housing uh, an issue regarding a service animal um, that was uh, denied, and so uh, uh, that went to that went to complaint. And uh, one of the terms in the conciliation agreement with the agency was that you will do fair housing training for all your managers and supervisors. But that's me doing it as their as their corporate attorney. It's not the it's not the agency coming in and conducting the training. And you uh, particularly with how active um, this uh, uh, federal government is around the issue of unionization as uh, we've seen it made a cornerstone of kind of the White House's strategic plan um, str or strategic workforce planning. I, I would have concerns about the messages that were being delivered if, if uh, an arm of the federal government was coming in and giving training to, to anybody on labor issues these days. Yeah, I just reread this. It's uh, not just the managers and supervisors that they're uh, suggesting get trained that provide ongoing training of employees. So that's a, that's a huge budgetary issue. 
Not just it from is. the employer, but you know, who's going to pay the FMCS to do it? Uh, well, we are. Well, we are. I assume. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's. <laughs> it's lovely how our tax dollars are, are being spent, I suppose. But but again, I mean, that even more to the point. I I have issues uh, if you're going to. Um, uh, we, we talked last time about the board cracking down on employer captive audience speeches. This is a captive audience speech that's going to be run by the federal government kind of to, to give the labor law rules of the road for employees. And that how problematic is that? Right. And if, well, I'm not sure about the FMCS employees, if they're unionized, but I know the NLRB's employees are unionized. Right. Let's talk about that a little bit. We, we mentioned the Amazon, uh, complaint that is apparently being drafted regarding the captive audience meetings that were held in Staten Island. And the interesting thing about that is, again, we haven't seen it yet, but as if it is a complaint issued against Amazon for the meetings at, I think it's JFK 8, which is where the union won the election. Right. I'm not sure why they would go about doing that. Uh, because there, I, I will, I think, the the board is looking for a test case to kind of change the I guess and maybe they have it already in case it's been briefed but if they can find the right set of facts to uh, to make new law and captive audience speeches why not try and why not try in multiple cases I suppose yeah because they've got the um, CMEX case that's right that's out there right. Right, but what? But what's the rem- what's the remedy here? I mean, the the, the union won, so what, I'm right. not sure what. Yeah, so what's the remedy the board's trying to get by by um, issuing a complaint over captive audience speeches that apparently didn't do their job well enough to sway enough employees to vote against to to vote against the union? Yeah, it's, it's puzzling, but and again, we haven't seen the complaint yet, so I wasn't even sure based on the Bloomberg article whether it was uh, on the content of the meetings or just the mere holding of the meetings. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it's unclear. I would assume, and it's always dangerous to assume, but based on what we, based on what we saw in CMEX, it's, I, I, I would assume it's the meeting having the meeting itself. But again, um, you know, we always learn in law school that you can't have uh, you know a legal wrong um, requires something to remedy or redress. And if the union won, I'm not convinced there's a remedy the board can offer here. So, right. Um, let me move back to, to Starbucks for a second. Um, and the tips rules, I'm trying to keep this focused for our HR folks that are listening. Um, so the threats, which is any kind of predictive statement, uh, with a negative consequence at the end, the interrogation, I always say, just don't ask a question, you know, other than how was your weekend? And even that could be bad if there's a unit meeting over the weekend, I suppose. <laughs> um, but you know, you can you can still talk about football and you know the Buffalo Bills since this is up in Buffalo. But um, just try not to interrogate or ask questions about how somebody feels about the union or if um, they went to a union meeting or anything like that. The promises part um, and a number of these are you know solicitation grievances as we talked about and then remedying those grievances. Do you want to talk a little bit about laboratory conditions? Because a number of these kind of, that's the underlying principle with them. Yeah, I mean, the, the, an election has to be held, the, the board speaks of laboratory conditions, and they, they, the election has to be held in a condition free of unfair labor practices. Um, in, a, in a, I mean, they speak of a lab as a, you know, a lab being a sterile environment. 
um, clean of contaminants and the election has to be conducted in the exact same way. And so you can't, you know, the board um, won't sign off on the results of election, the results of an election if there are um, unfair labor practice charges leading up to that election that have tainted or contaminated uh, those uh, the the laboratory conditions that the election was supposed to is is supposed to 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 be held under. Yeah, these these allegations, um, some of them in, includes like improving the store's um, physical, you know, like revamping the store, remodeling the store. I vaguely remember this coming up last year during these campaigns because they apparently were slotted to be uh, remodeled, but then. By doing that, the the NLRB and the unions accusing the company of changing those stores and remedying grievances. Yeah, which is not a you know the 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 appearance of a store. It's not a bargaining subject. It's not something I think that would be subject to a grievance uh, if there was a if there was a, a collective bargaining agreement in place. I mean, if there's safety issues that are being brought up, that's one thing. But if it's the layout, the design, the decor, whatever, um, the uh, upkeep of the store, I'm not sure that that's even a subject of bargaining that can be grieved to begin with. So that's that's an interesting allegation. Yeah, one of one of them, and I'm looking for it, is the, um, that the company uh, remedied a grievance or complaint by addressing pest control issues. So <laughs> I guess, you know, calling in the... The Calling in the organ man. Yeah. 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 Which that's, these are some of the ones that I think are just, they're throwing everything at it and seeing what sticks. Yeah. If you're going to make a hundred and some allegations and 10 stick, you know, it's, you just need one, I suppose. So. Well, and it, it, to me, this, and the reason this kind of, I saw this and I was like, wow, we should kind of talk about this is it goes to the, um, I think this extreme nature of, the current NLRB and the GC. Yeah, for sure. It is, um, it's, it's an activist board. I mean, we all thought the Obama era board was an activist board. I mean, this is, um, I always hate the phrase like X on steroids. Um, it's so overused, but this really is like the Obama, this is like the Obama board on steroids in terms of the, the activist of what appears to be the activist level of this board um, to and so you wonder, like, I, I suppose the organizing itself is the chicken and the, the board's activism is the egg, I think, but then they feed on themselves. And so this, this, this hyperactive board is going to keep fueling the organizing that we're seeing nationwide, which is going to keep feeding cases to the board to keep changing law, to keep, uh, to keep them, keep the organizing going. So it's, it's, it's really dangerous times. For employers that don't want to be collectively which kind of goes back to the point you made earlier about getting training and you know understanding what the what the handcuffs are that you have placed on you exactly exactly because i think it's safe to assume that if you are an employer that ends up in litigation uh, before the national labor relations board at least for the next you know two and a half years uh, you are not going to have a favorable uh, might maybe I mean maybe at the ALJ level depending on the, the judge you draw in your in your in the particular region you're in but once the case gets to, to the full board in DC um, you are you're not going to have a favorable year and I guess the 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 upshot of this is you know, the NLRB 
but all of these issues of law is not the final is not the final decider here. There's appeals to into the federal courts after that, and um, what we may what we may end up seeing is some of these issues ultimately making the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to decide whether the you know the NLRB is uh, appropriately exercising its agency discretion to interpret to interpret the act and the current composition of the, the current composition of the Supreme Court. Um, as we know, is going to be much more business friendly than what the board currently looks like. But that's a long, that is a long road until you get to the Supreme Court um, taking a look at some of these issues. You know, one of the allegations in here, um, and this, I think I'm still looking for it, the, um, the allegation was essentially that the employer threatened the employees that should the union become their collective bar. I'm really bastardizing what was said, but the, um, that they would not have a direct relationship. And this was also in the CMEX case, I believe. Um, it was, it was, um, which is, uh, but I think we talked about this last time I was on. I mean, that is, that is factually accurate. Uh, right. In, in almost all cases, a, a, a employees that are collectively bargained uh, do not have, they're legally prohibited from having a direct relationship with the employer. The, the union is the exclusive bargaining agent and issues, uh, uh, grievances, you know, must be processed through, uh, through the union for resolution. And so that is accurate. Um, and it's troubling to me that the board is continuing to push um, what I you know, what I see as a false narrative that it is unlawful for employers to communicate to employees that you will lose, you will lose that direct relationship. You know, like I said earlier, you can absolutely um, share facts about, um, about uh, uh, what happens in a collectively bargained relationship. Um, you can give specific examples of what happened. If the CEO of a company um, uh, or a manager worked in another shop that was collectively bargained, they can absolutely share, um, you know, examples of things that, you know, ac share accurate examples of things that happened in other workplaces. And one accurate thing you can share is that we could no longer, uh, you know, we could no longer directly communicate with employees about issues that were going on, um, you know, going on in the shop floor. That they, the employees had to do that through their, through their bargaining agent, and it's troubling to me that the board is is trying to um, handcuff employers from communicating what is, in almost all cases, one hundred percent accurate. Well, what what they're hanging their hat on is that one part of I think it's Section Nine C, um, where an employee has the right to present a grievance to the employer. However, the the other side of that is the union has the right to be present. Which they, all, which they almost always exercise. Right. And in fact, um, let me just read you the, the allegation responded by the individuals named below about the dates and at the locations opposite their names threatened its employees with the loss of a direct relationship with management if they selected the union as their bargaining representative. The, the Labor Board's own documents, which is the basic guide to the National Labor Relations Act, actually states it in there. You know, once, once a group of workers has unionized, the union becomes the exclusive bargaining representative. And that's that's what's so puzzling about <clears throat> excuse me, the their entire 
direction on this because in fact once you are unionized the union is your bargaining agent period yeah hard stop that's it yeah, yeah. so that that in and of itself implies that the direct relationship is gone it, it does it certainly does and the word exclusive there i mean it's doing a lot of work in in that in that section of the act but that's i mean that's what it that's what it means exclusive it 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 prohibits um, direct communication by, by the employer to the employees. And, and you're right that employees can um, uh, go, to, go to the employer. Uh, the union uh, does have the right to demand representation that it be present in that case. And, and most union contracts uh, require it. And so it is, um, again, I think it's, it's, just, it's just troubling to me that the board is, is, is trying to handcuff is trying to handcuff employers' messaging in this way. Well, I think, um, and for those employers that start talking to their employees about stuff, you just have to nuance your conversation. You know, here's this little provision in the act that does allow you to present grievances, but the union gets to sit there. And if you're a member of specific unions, and it depends on which one, their actual union constitutions would prohibit you from doing that. Right. Teamsters being one. Uh, several others. Yeah, it just becomes a much, um, and at some point, once you start explaining the legalities of all this to employees, do their, do their eyes start, you know, glazing over? Maybe that's the point here. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, usually when I'm doing classes with employees, it's, I'll pick a couple people sitting up front and just use the examples, make them, you know, John Doe and Jane Doe or so on. Right, right, right. Um, so you, you touched on, um, is we're going through tips. I, I mentioned before we got on, I always use the term spit, don't spit. So spy, promise, interrogate, threaten. Um, I've heard some people say pits. So it's just whatever you're comfortable with. But you can you can present facts, right? You can you mentioned opinions. So there's a number of things you can do. Yeah, you can give and you can give examples. You can um, you can provide employees, you know, newspaper clippings about the president of the union that's organizing them, uh, you know, being investigated for embezzlement, right? Or, um, you know, you, you can share YouTube videos of, uh, you know, outrageous behavior um, on picket lines or, you know, examples of unions that, you know, made campaign promises during organizing that failed to deliver uh, on those promises during, you know, at the bargaining table. So there's there's lots that employers can do, provided that you stay within the can't threaten, can't interrogate, can't make promises, and, you know, can't spy or surveil on employees. Yeah, so to, to nuance that a little bit, if you're um, giving examples like newspaper articles, plant closed down the street, or... Uh, fight on picket lines or I'm just making stuff up as I go through this. But if you do that, as long as you don't follow that up with, if you unionize, that will happen here. Correct. That, that is correct. It is just a, it is just a, and we usually, um, you know, we'll make, you know, we'll make posters out of it and, or handouts or leaflets and, you know, hand them out to employees. Um, I was involved in an organizing campaign, uh, UAW a couple of years ago and, uh, coincidentally, right in the middle, of, right in the middle of the campaign, the president of the UAW—it was front-page news in the, in the Detroit Free Press—was um, uh, uh, being investigated for um, embezzling 
you know, from the, from the union. And, you know, we took that newspaper clipping, put it on a leaflet, um, you know, made it look all, you know, made it look all pretty in Photoshop and then, you know, got it out to employees. And it's just, here's the information you do with it, what you do with it, what you want to do with it, but this is what you're voting for. If you vote for the union. Right. Yeah. The UAW is, um, they've had a lot of newspaper articles over the last uh, they have. five so there years. Are, you know, some, some, some unions are easier to find dirt on than others. Right. So on, on the tips part of this, um, the big thing is kind of knowing what the rules of the road are before you get hit. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that comes, and that comes, and that comes with, you know, as I said before, for, um, HR professionals, managers, supervisors, executives that have not been through you, have not been through union organizing before. Um, that is a, 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 an investment by the company in training so that everybody um, who has the potential to create an unfair labor practice by doing something wrong uh, understands what these rules are so they can, so they can follow them and do things correctly and maintain those laboratory conditions. Yeah, so as we're as we're talking about the things that you can and, and versus what you cannot do, um, one of the big things that's hanging out there is the ban on the mandatory meetings or captive audience meetings. And so that currently um, is not the law, right? There's no ban in effect right now. That is correct. Um, however, even in cases that you may run a completely can- clean campaign, so to speak, in terms of you're not pushing the boundaries with tips and, you know, you're just presenting facts and all that. It could be if you get a a petition, you hold meetings, you could get a a charge just on holding the meetings. Yeah. uh, In criminal law, the constitution refers to that as an an ex post facto law, right? You can't can't criminalize past conduct, um, but that is exactly what the board uh, has the potential to do here. Um, uh, Particularly, um, and we don't know when the, the, the decision in CMEX is going to come down. Um, we presume at some point, uh, you know, in the next you know, six months, give or take, we'll see a decision in that case. But that leaves on the table all the conduct leading up to when that, um, you know, when the board dis- makes the decision on whether captive audience speeches in and of themselves, even if nothing illegal is said in that meeting, if just the mere fact of holding the meeting is a violation of the act, that puts months of uh, uh, what is now legal activity by an employer potentially on the table um, as challengeable. So are you recommending to clients to hold voluntary meetings or just hold meetings? Um, Right now I'm just saying hold meetings. Yeah. So it's, um, I, and I, because I do meetings all the time, I've, I don't like holding meetings where people don't want to be there. So I agree. If, if I have people come in and, you know, get all trying to keep my language clean, uh, get upset with having to sit in the meetings, I usually just invite them to leave. Yeah. You Finally. know, I mean, the, the, I, I agree with you hundred percent. The meeting, if people are there either to be intentionally disruptive or become disruptive because they don't want to be there or disagree with the message that's being delivered, I, you, you can't hold an effective meeting that way. So why, why do you want them in the room? You're not going to, you're not going to convince those people um, to your viewpoint anyway. And so they're, they're doing more harm than good for you as the employer by keeping them in the room. Yeah. Well, and it's frankly, it, you know, our classes are literally classes. So if they don't want to learn something, cause invariably they will, 
but if they don't want to learn that, you know, you don't have to be there. Right. No, that's exactly right. So what's your advice to employers right now? In terms of um, how do they navigate these choppy waters of the, the labor board and the interpretation of the national labor relations act that's in flux and what, the, what should they be doing? I mean, throw their hands up in the air. I don't know. I mean, it is, it's, I mean, I think the advice remains as it's all, as I think it's not, well, let me put it this way. I think it's more important, more important now, more than ever, not to get yourself organized, not to get yourself as a business, as an employer in the crosshairs of a labor union. So I think there is a premium now uh, more than there has ever been before on um, maintaining a positive workplace culture, maintaining positive relations with your employees, make sure your employees feel respected and treated well, and that they have a voice um, that is that is at least uh, listened to, if not always agreed, not, if not always agreed with. Um, all the things that we do and all the things that we say are important in remaining union-free. I think there is a, a heightened premium put on that now more than ever because uh, we can kind of stare into our Karnak envelope and we can see what's coming um, at the board. And it's not going to be pretty for, you know, for, uh, for employers when um, uh, this iteration of the NLRB finishes rewriting all of these rules. Uh, it's not going to be pretty for employers. It's going to make, uh, it's going to swing the pendulum uh, even further uh, in favor of, labor unions in uh, organizing in elections. And so I think the, the best bet for an employer is to stay out of uh, unions kind of crosshairs as best as possible, which puts a premium on uh, a little bit of reflection um, to say kind of who are we as an employer? What is our culture? Um, is, this a, is this a positive place to work? Are there reasons why employees might look outside um, the workplace for any year for someone to listen to them. Um, and if there is, getting your arms around as best as possible what those issues are and fixing them as quickly as possible so that employees don't feel that they have to go to a union to get um, uh, to create a workplace that they want to work in. You, you mentioned Karnak for uh, a couple minutes ago. I started chuckling. I was like, I wonder how many millennials or Gen Zs know who Karnak is. So. There was there was there was nothing better. So I'm I'm 49, and there was nothing better as a kid of kind of keeping the TV down real low um, and staying up late to watch Johnny Carson. So right, right. Yeah. So some of this is is basic um, labor relations, employee relations, 101. You know, finding out what your issues are, fixing your issues, making sure employees have a voice, make sure they're treated with dignity and respect. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's it's the back to basics on that stuff. Um, but we're also seeing in Starbucks as the great example, a different type of mixture of employees that are, are going towards the unions. We've had conversations about this a little bit. But yeah, it, you're, you're right. I mean, it is a, it is a definitely, it's a much more, um, uh, it's a much younger, I think it's much more younger, more educated um, you have employees that are much more activists that kind of cut their teeth over the last few years on issues like 
um, racial equality and equity, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, LGBTQ rights and the like. And, um, and they're now using, I think, what they learned um, from their, so, from their uh, uh, social issue organizing uh, to, uh, uh, and they're turning that lens to workplace organizing. And, and uh, they learned a lot. It, it, Gen Z, that generation learned a lot in their um, uh, social activism. And that social activism has now become workplace activism. Well, yeah, it's, um, I've pointed this out a couple of times, like the Amazon labor union, uh, not necessarily on this podcast, but, um, writing the Amazon labor union was backed by the communist part of USA. You've got the DSA that is very active, which is democratic socialists of America, very active with the Starbucks campaigns. Um, and it's a, it's a different generation of folks who are not necessarily, um, pro union in your grandfather's union but they're more pushing towards the left-leaning socialist type of unions. Look, look, look at the ages of the people that are at Bernie Sanders rallies um, and, you know, cite AOC as one of their heroes. And there is the, the younger people are these days, the much more likely it is they're going to identify with socialist viewpoints and philosophies, which is, you know, that's, and if your workforce skews young and Starbucks uh, workforce certainly Fits that fits that demographic. That's the way your employees think, and if you're not if you're not accounting for that in how you are treating your employees, handling your employees, they they want to have a voice, right? They believe they are entitled to having a voice. It is, I think, it is a sense of entitlement in that generation, and. Uh, if you are not meeting that need for that, they're going to go find it somewhere else. Where they're finding it is with human organizers. Yeah, you know, you used the phrase a minute ago, educated, because they've got some college, um, a lot of them have college either yep. diplomas or they're still in college. I don't know that educated is necessarily the right term with some of them. They've gotten um, stuff spoon-fed to them. And, like, you know, if you if you look at a lot of them, they're, um, it's a different class or breed of employees. And they have gotten this collectivist mindset that's been pushed down their throats and they've swallowed it hook, line and sinker. Because when you actually do try to educate them about the National Labor Relations Act, what collective bargaining is all about, they they push back on actual education. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah which, which unfortunately, I think we talked about this before, they're not gonna learn it unless they learn it the hard way. That is correct. That is correct. And, you know, and maybe the end game to all of this, the, the current surge we're seeing in, in organizing and unionization, maybe the end game to this is employees get a taste of what being in a labor union is all about and what that means for them and their employment, and they decide they don't like it. And the pendulum ultimately swings back the other way. So. Right. Yeah, and that's what's so fascinating about right now is that it, it is this pendulum that goes back and forth, and I think we're seeing a pendulum that we may not have seen since the 1920s or 30s. Yeah, I, th but, I think that's right. But it'll be it'll be fascinating over the next decade or two. Uh, for sure, for sure. It's um, I mean, look, as someone that represents employers, and I make my living doing this, as as do you. Um, not the worst thing in the world for either one of us, uh, but certainly not great for businesses right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is a tough time, and and unfortunately, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, 
we saw the um, a little bit of an upsurge during the Obama administration, but it never really took root. And I think it lulled a bunch of employers into um, a little bit of a somber, so to speak, or, or slumber, not somber. And so now when it's really hitting, they're not really waking up to it fast enough. And I think you're right. I, I think you're right. I think there's still a little bit of a, uh... I think businesses are, are, I don't know if you call it a COVID hangover, but I think businesses yeah. are still playing catch up from the pandemic too. And they're still trying to kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of get their businesses back up to full speed as we're dealing, we're still dealing with, they have other issues dealing with besides their employees. They're dealing with supply chain issues, and inflation and other things. And this is just one more worry to add, to add on to that, but it's just it's one more, right, of, of a bucket list of worries that businesses have right now. And so it does... It does, I think, dilute the importance somewhat, but uh, but employers shouldn't discount or downplay the importance of this because this is this is a, a vital important issue. Yeah, is um, if, if I keep kind of coming back to the HR folks, and they are so swamped with everything that they're doing with the recruiting and trying to get bodies in the door for operations and. It just, it just uh, burned out. It's been a yeah. long two years for HR. HR was on the front lines of the pandemic in the workplace. They were. I mean, they became, they were writing policies, they were managing COVID leaves of absences, they were taking temperatures on the way in the door, they were, you know, they were maintaining a whole new set of health records, they were figuring out, you know, ta- payroll tax credits for COVID leave, they were uh, mask police, they were, um, you know, they were, you know, social distancing police. Um, it's been a long two years for HR, and I, I it, from the HR folks that I talk to, they're, they're burned out. They are just burned out after two years of uh, managing um, COVID-19 on the front lines. And now we're telling them, um, you know, that's over. Um, COVID is still, my wife has COVID right now, so COVID's not over, it's still there. But, um, but as the national emergency, it certainly feels over. Um, and, but now we're telling HR, you know, here's another emergent issue you have to deal with. And they're just, they're just exhausted. Yeah. I, I haven't seen any studies of, uh, how many people are leaving the HR field, but I certainly see the, the comments on a couple of the boards and it seems as though people are, to use your phrase, very burned out. Yeah, they don't, for sure. they don't want the the additional headaches of, oh, now we've got to worry about union stuff. Yeah, well, guess what? Now i got to worry about unions too. Sorry. Right. right. Yeah. So, John Hyman, I'm going to put um, all of your info under the audio portion of this, and I, I so appreciate you coming on. It's just, these are fun conversations, and I like having them. I, I'm honestly happy to do it anytime. So, Well, we're, the next case, and I, I have a feeling it's not going to be too far down the road, we'll probably do this again. Hit me up. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Peter. All right. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was John Hyman with the law firm Wickens Herzer Panza. And I have a feeling we're going to be chatting a lot over the next few years. Um, as fast as this labor board is moving to change the law, uh, there's stuff that comes up almost every week. In any case, if you're not following John Hyman on LinkedIn, you should. He has a tremendous following, um, thousands and thousands of followers. He writes prolifically. He also has the Ohio Employer Law blog, which you should be following. And I'm going to leave the links to those under the audio portion of this episode. Uh, 
In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out on Twitter, it's at Workplace Report. You can leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode, as well as give us a call at one 888 668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.